Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Matt Eisenson, and I'm a third-year student at Yale Law School. I'm in the studio today with Peter Lehner, the Executive Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Peter is an experienced litigator. He also manages coffee and sugarcane farms in Costa Rica. Before he was hired to be the Executive Director at NRDC, Peter was the Chief Environmental Prosecutor for New York State. He ran the Environmental Protection Bureau at the Attorney General's office. Fresh out of law school, Peter created and directed the Environmental Prosecution Unit for New York City. I worked closely with Peter for two years before law school, and I am very excited to be speaking with him today. Peter, welcome to the studio. Welcome, Matt. It's great to be here. We have a lot of ground to cover. Let's start with farming and agriculture and then talk about current events. You're giving a speech tonight at the law school about agriculture and its contribution to climate change. You say that agriculture is the forgotten wedge. It's an area where we can reduce emissions, but it's not getting enough attention. What's the magnitude of this issue, and what are, what are some things we need to do to bring it under control? Well, the, the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture varies tremendously from country to country, but estimates are worldwide that it could be anywhere between, between 10 and 50 percent of total world greenhouse gas emissions. Part of the reason for the big range is that there's a lack of transparency. We just don't have a lot of data on greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. Part of the reason also is it varies tremendously. I think a best guess is it's probably 10 or so or 15 percent in the United States, and the central estimate is probably more like 30 percent worldwide. If you think about it, 30 percent worldwide, that puts it on a par with our transportation system in terms of its contribution to climate change. And yet it's an area where we really don't think about it from a climate change perspective. We think about it from a nutritional perspective or land use, soil depletion, water quality and erosion, but we also need to think about it from the perspective of climate change. And uh, I understand you have some personal experience with farming. How did you and your family become involved with coffee and sugarcane in Costa Rica? Well, as a family, we got involved through a sort of random series of events the way you get involved. My father was involved in actually what's called textile waste. We now call it fiber recycling. It sounds a little better. And uh, was buying some fiber waste from people in Latin America and was able to get involved in this coffee farm when the fiber business wasn't doing very well. But what's been fun about that is trying to have the hands-on management of a farm even at the same time as in my life in New York, I am dealing with farm pollution and often suing farmers. And being a farmer as well as suing farmers gave me a better perspective on the challenges of farming. There are some things where it's just very, very hard. You can do the same thing in two different areas and your crop comes out differently. You can do the same thing in one year, it's a very different result next year. And how you connect to the environment around you is very complicated. So it was a tremendous opportunity and, and good luck on my part to be able to understand that firsthand as I was trying to clean up waterways in New York. 
And I know you're experimenting with some ways to improve yield, improve efficiency, reduce your environmental impact. What can you tell us about your, your findings? Well, at the coffee farm, a big factor is varieties, trying to find the right variety for the right place. Another big factor is soil health. So we are on the banks on the side of a volcano, and to take mulch from the coffee beans themselves and the, and the coffee plants, as well as manure from a nearby farm, uh, decomposed mud from the bottom of a nearby lagoon, and things like that, put them all together, compost them and let them decompose uh, at the right rate, and then apply that as soil enhancers can make a big difference. Another big factor, of course, is how you manage the plant. It takes a lot of uh, of personal attention in terms of pruning and, and maintenance, and all of these things together can make a difference. We've recently planted a lot of shade trees. Some trees, like poro, it's called, is actually a legume, so it injects nitrogen into the soil and also has a lot of leaves that come down and and further enhance the soil. So there are a lot of ways like that that you can improve soil health, which then improves your crop health. Is shade-grown coffee hard to grow? It is certainly different, and learning something different for some is very tough. A uh, farmer is gets used to one approach, and it's scary to change. If Imagine if you have been growing sun-grown sh- coffee and you plant co- shade trees. It may affect the, your yield. It might not. You don't know how much it will affect your yield, and your yield goes up and down anyhow, and the world coffee price goes up and down anyhow. So it asks a lot of a farmer to make these very bold moves that could be quite costly. And that's why it's important to work with the farming community to create incentives, to create pilot projects, and other ways so that they can actually see that shade trees, for example, can provide protection against more extreme weather, can help retain moisture in the soils, so help the crops weather dry spells, can provide a different microclimate. And once they see that, they'll be more open to changing their own practices. I want to ask you a few questions about what NRDC is doing in the agricultural space. Uh, We know that NRDC is expanding its reach in agriculture, and it's not just about climate. Uh, NRDC recently sued the FDA to ban feeding antibiotics to healthy livestock. Could you tell us about how NRDC chose this issue? Sure. We'd long recognized that one of the main sources of uh, challenges to our health comes from our food system. We, of course, as an environmental group, have worked to try to keep the air cleaner, the water cleaner, but we have to keep our food cleaner. And we had been challenging EPA over the years for allowing excessive residues of harmful pesticides. And as we learned more about the industrialized agriculture system, we came to realize that 80% of agriculture is used on healthy animals, animals that aren't sick, and is used on them both to make them grow fatter at a more rapid clip and to compensate for unsanitary conditions. Now, you wouldn't feed your kids antibiotics in their morning cereal every day to keep them healthy. You keep them healthy by having them wash their hands and have decent diets and and practices. And until recently, that is what farmers did. But they now use these antibiotic doses to compensate for unsanitary conditions. 
And the trouble with that is not only does it allow for inappropriate stewardship approaches, but it also leads to antibiotic resistance. And that, as anyone following the news knows, is a pretty frightening possibility. Antibiotics that we've come on, we've come to rely on to protect our health, to allow us to undergo surgery, whatever else, might not work anymore. I'm interested in this question of resistance. Uh, why is it so difficult to get a doctor to prescribe antibiotics, but so easy for farmers to feed antibiotics to their, to their pigs? Well, it's different standards, different communities. Uh, the doctors are concerned about spreading antibiotic resistance. If you get antibiotics, for example, for a cold, which is viral, it doesn't do any good. And it helps create, through just evolutionary processes, bugs and bacteria that will be resistant to the antibiotics next time around. And perhaps because the doctors are using it for their own patients, they're pretty aware of that. That being said, uh, and I'm less of an expert on this, I think there's a great concern that even so, there's a tremendous amount of over-prescribing of antibiotics to humans. But the veterinary world and the big world of industrial agriculture and agrochemicals is very different. And right now, we see that is routine. There are some farmers that don't use antibiotics, and that's growing. Recently, and we applauded this, uh, Purdue, one of the country's largest chicken manufacturer or chicken growers, uh, agreed not to use antibiotics routinely on animals that aren't sick. We don't have any problem, by the way, with using antibiotics on an animal that is sick. It's the idea of using them on animals that aren't sick just to make them to grow fatter, faster, and to compensate for unsanitary and inhumane conditions is what shouldn't happen. Well, the FDA has known since the 1970s that antibiotic use in livestock was a problem. What is it uh, that's stopping the FDA from acting on this information? The FDA has known. They actually found that this was unsafe uh, long ago. And under the statute, we think they have an obligation to withdraw approval to use these antibiotics for this purpose. And we sued the FDA, and we won in district court. Unfortunately, we lost in the Second Circuit on a, on a, a related but not the core scientific issue uh, on, a, on a legal question of interpretation. So we're going to be continuing to push this issue. Uh, the, the good news is that the FDA, in the course of this litigation, did have to acknowledge that this is a real problem, that 80% of our antibiotics are used on animals that aren't sick is a terrible way to use these precious, life-saving drugs. And so they have issued some guidance to try to reduce that use. Now, it's going to be interesting to see whether that guidance succeeds in actually significantly reducing use of antibiotics on the farm. And if it doesn't, as we su suspect will be the case, the FDA has committed to taking stronger action. We've also been pushing, and the president recently uh, issued a report acknowledging the dangers of this practice, and it is likely that we'll see more executive action on this issue. So we are beginning to see change. Uh, we are seeing more consumers demand change. People don't want to have their chicken or their beef stuffed full of antibiotics. And so a number of private companies, Panera Bread, Chick-fil-A, and others, have gone to antibiotic-free chicken. Well, let's turn to some good news. 
We've had some good news the past few weeks. Uh, this week, President Obama and Chinese President Xi Jinping announced a new pact to reduce carbon emissions. And last week, Alaska voters approved a ballot measure to protect salmon in Bristol Bay. These are two issues that NRDC is very involved with, right? That's correct. And, and, and it's big news. Uh, was the, the climate pact a surprise in the environmental community, or has this been building up for a while? Well, the actual pact was a surprise, but the fact of the need to reduce emissions in China and the United States and that these two countries, together being the largest two emitters in the world, and between the two of them, almost half of the world's carbon emissions, that's not a surprise. We have an office in Beijing, and we've been working for a long time uh, with a broad coalition of others to try to get the Chinese to become more energy efficient, to expand clean energy, and to agree to put a cap on their coal use, eventually leading to a cap on their emissions. Of course, we've been doing the same uh, and more in the United States for, for a long time. And clearly, what one does makes a difference to the other. These are the two largest economies, the two largest emitters. And whenever you go and talk to anyone about a global issue, they ask, well, what's, what are the others doing? And we're unfortunately hearing that from uh, members of Congress all the time. Why should the U.S. reduce its emissions if the Chinese don't? So the, uh, the, the fact now that the Chinese are committing to cap their emissions is really extraordinary. And it will have an impact not only in China and uh, we hope in the U.S. dialogue, but also in other big countries. We can imagine it will have a big impact in India and Indonesia and Brazil and around the world. It seems like trust uh, between two countries is a really important factor here, uh, and it seems that the nonprofits play a big role in helping to, to bridge the, the diplomatic divide. And what, what's been your experience uh, at NRDC having offices in the U.S. and Beijing? That's absolutely true, and we can make a big difference. Often we find that when we're talking to folks in China, they're asking us for our candid assessment of what's really happening in the, in the U.S. And when we talk to people in the U.S., they ask for our best view of what's happening in China. And we can offer, a, as it were, a non-diplomatic channel uh, for information. It's also important because we have been pushing uh, in both countries and around the world open and transparent information. One of the challenges, of course, is uh, that we hear again from members of Congress now is, oh, you can't trust them. They might say something, but are they really going to do that? So, for example, in China, we have been pushing and helping design uh, as advisors programs that allow better monitoring of environmental information, making that information public so it's verifiable, and all of that that increases the level of trust one can have in the information. And when you trust the information, then you can build off of that. One more question about this pact. What's the legal uh, or political significance of the pact? How do we make sure that the U.S. and China uphold their ends? Well, it will be, in all of these cases, the, the question of exactly the legal framework is, 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 is often debated. And it's at least our view that the critical part is that it be enforceable in each country and that each country move ahead with enforceable mechanisms. There's obviously a challenge, and many people would like to have a globally 
binding agreement uh, like we uh, hoped for in Copenhagen, but that didn't happen. So now there's uh, the suggestion that perhaps instead of focusing on a global treaty, we instead focus on an agreement that then is binding in each country under each country's domestic laws. And that's an important factor. It does mean that we can move forward in each country. And for example, in China, they often put something into a five-year plan. We don't have five-year plans in the United States. So that form of, of, of determination doesn't really make sense here. But it does, by and large, work in China. And when they put something in their plan, they're going to be committed to hitting that those targets. So that's going to be the important part. It's not so much the specifically legal structures, but that they are structures that work. That's great. And what can you tell us about Pebble Mine and Bristol Bay and the vote last week? Well, Pebble Mine, for those who don't know, is going to was is a proposed mine, gold uh, and copper mine, which would be one of the largest mines on the planet. Uh, it would be up in Bristol Bay in Alaska, which is home to the largest salmon run in the world, half the world's salmon from that area. And it's been quite clear that an open mine of this sort would have devastating consequences on the salmon run and, of course, the local community. So the most recent uh, referendum was by the local community to put roadblocks for the development of such a mine. The local community, as well as the whole state, had already voted on the issue. And this is not a situation where environmentalists from the lower 48 are coming up and opposing a project that the locals support. RNDC's role has been really to support the local community and their opposition. They want to maintain their fishery and their community and their clean water, and we've been helping them do that. It also seemed to me that the, the messaging on the ballot was really uh, brilliant and clear. It was a, the question was to choose between salmon or mining right now. And often we're told that environmental messaging is very hard. Talking about the future impacts of climate change is hard. Are there other opportunities for messaging like this, or is this just a, a, a rare instance where uh, we can really nail it? Well, in so many different areas, we are seeing immediate impacts. And clearly, people are more concerned about what will happen this week, this month, this year than what will happen in 50 years. Air pollution gets your you or your kid sick right away. Uh, and if you've talked with a kid with asthma or parent of a kid with asthma, they're concerned right now about that pollution, much of which is coming from coal-fired power plants where we are in New York and Connecticut. Uh, much of the pollution actually comes in from the Midwest, from these huge coal-fired power plants that send out sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide and fine particles, causing disease downwind. And that's immediate, and so people are quite aware of that. Now, those same power plants are also the largest drivers of climate change pollution, so we have an opportunity to protect immediate public health even as we protect the planet. And on climate change, clearly the debate is changing now as people are seeing immediate impacts. They're seeing wildfires uh, engulfing communities, their own community or communities nearby. They're seeing droughts that they've rarely seen before or much more frequent flooding that are wiping out their fields uh, and communities. This is how heat waves that are, are really quite deadly. All of this is converting something theoretical and distant to something that's very here and now. Hmm. 
One area where messaging might be less important is litigation. Uh, NRDC started off in the 1970s, primarily focused on litigation. And my question for you is whether there are still high impact litigation opportunities out there. Uh, we know that there are not very many new environmental statutes. Have we exhausted all the opportunities on the existing statutes? Not at all. There, there's still a lot of opportunities. I'll point out, of course, that NRDC was founded in 1970 by a group of Yale Law students, as well as uh, some lawyers from New York. Uh, so that's a particular connection. There are still tremendous opportunities under federal laws, of course, to enforce the laws. There, facilities still need permits, and you can enforce that. There, you can challenge agencies that are not complying with the law, as we sometimes do for an agency that may be rushing through a project that will have devastating environmental impacts. I think it's also important not to forget state and local government. It's really easy to look at what has been paralysis at the federal level, federal congressional level, not administrative. The federal agencies have done quite a bit. But at the federal congressional level, I think all government is paralyzed. But in fact, there's been a lot of progress at the states. Uh, California, New York, and Connecticut and others are really leaders in many ways. And as those programs move forward, there's possibilities both for policy and litigation at the state and local level as well. And I understand you were involved with perhaps the first climate change lawsuit. Uh, how did that uh, opportunity present itself? Well, that was a long time ago. That was back in 19... 88, I think, we had, I was working for the city of New York then, and President Reagan was rolling back or weakening fuel economy standards as he had the discretion to do for a few years. And in our first case, we thought if you weaken the fuel economy standards, that will have air quality impacts in New York City. And then when President Reagan rolled them back for a second year, we realized it wouldn't only have air quality impacts in New York City, making the air worse, but it would also have climate change impacts. And at that time, the, clim the science of climate change was, fairly, was already strong, but it wasn't as well-known an issue. Uh, nonetheless, in the D.C. Circuit, the courts held that the, uh, we had standing to raise the issue, and that, yes, it was a significant issue that needed to be considered. We, again, that specific case, we lost because the judges said that the agency had committed to do a full environmental study of all the issues for the whole program in the coming year. And by the time we got to court, the year we had sued over was over. So that was, the court said, I'm not going to make them go back and do something for a year that's already over. But the key is that the court recognized that, Global warming was something that was appropriate and legitimate to sue over and a required study by the government. Now, uh, before we close today, I'd like to ask you about uh, your advice for young people who are interested in working in the environmental field. Where do we need uh, boots on the ground right now? Do we need more litigators, more grassroots, uh, all of the above? All of the above. I think the advice that I would give is twofold. One is get a skill because the industry opposition is uh, fierce. They, are, they have a lot of money. They are the ones who have designed the current system. So they have the benefit of the status quo. Uh, and they, 
and, and are seeking to change that is a, is a tough challenge. And we need not only passionate people, but people with skills, whether it be skills in communication or skills in organizing or skills in litigation or in economics or in financing. A lot of opportunities for clean energy and for energy efficiency. The barriers, more than anything else, may be how do you get the upfront costs paid for in a way that is, is manageable for those who want to make these happen. So all these skills are really critical. The other thing uh, is to find some piece of it that you really enjoy working. These are long battles. Uh, and we, we, as I said, we're, change, we're seeking to change a system that's been in place a long time. And the changes we are seeking are far-reaching and go to the core of how energy, a very fundamental commodity, and other things are moved around. Uh, we, we talk about how we design our very communities and how people get around. We are looking at our food system and what we eat and how that's grown. These are big changes, and they're not going to happen overnight. And if somebody thinks they are going to do uh, make big changes too quickly and they don't really enjoy what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, it's going to be tough. It's been fantastic for me as an environmental lawyer to deal with all my the scientists who have been witnesses or experts in various cases. It's something I personally enjoy, and I get to work and learn about things I had no clue about before. Coastal erosion, epidemiology, limnology, climate change, and the physics of the upper atmosphere. This is great stuff, and if for somebody like me, it's fun to learn about it. Others will find other things that will really make them passionate, and that's the work you should do. You said that it's important to develop a skill. We often hear that the private sector uh, provides strong training in, in these skills. Would you say that private sector experience is valuable or can be valuable? Or Absolutely, absolutely, and I think... For, for a couple different reasons. Uh, but while much of the pollution does come from private sector entities, it doesn't mean that the private sector is inherently evil, far from. Uh, most of the goods and services in this country are produced by the private sector, and we want to shape that and create incentives for them to do so in a way that is sustainable. Uh, as a young person, you can learn a tremendous amount, whether it be as a, at a law firm learning how to be a great litigator. Uh, we've had and we've hired at NRDC people who worked at oil and gas companies because they really understand how the system works, how you get gas out of the ground, and therefore they have a front row seat on opportunities of how it can be done better. So you can really learn a lot of skills, but it's also critical to understand the private sector well enough to be able to think about how we can shape the rules, which is to say the laws and regulations, so that they have the incentive to invest in cleaner technologies or more efficiency and to move to practices that are more sustainable. Uh, they will, by and large, follow the rules. I think the people who work at these companies, they don't want to poison their neighborhoods. They want to do the right thing. And so the more you know about that, the better chance you have of helping create the rules that will create the right incentives. E.O. Wilson said that we should set aside half of the planet for wildlife. It seems that we sometimes need to have a, a powerful vision of what we're, what, what we're looking for. And I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were about E.O. Wilson's vi vision, what your own vision is, and what sort of metrics for success you think about. 
I think it is important, and it's wonderful what E.O. Wilson does uh, and others, to have a, a vision that can inspire us because we need to be inspired. We need to want to get up and, and, and get at this every day. It's also, though, important to have metrics or goals that are more achievable so we can show we're actually making progress. And whether it be the, the goal, the personal goal to save a, a local community forest or to convince your local school to buy healthier food, neither of those are on their own going to change the world. But they're great steps forward, and they are important to be able to see that as we look, as we're part of the bigger effort. So you need both the big goals and the more immediate goals, and probably at every, every level in between. And that's, the, I think, the exciting part, having both of those together. Well, Peter, thank you so much. We're really looking forward to your talk tonight. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here with you.